0: Um, I've had a really wonderful time getting to know you and talk to you for the last three months since I've been here, and one of my favorite topics um, that's been fun to um, speak with so many of you has been on reading, and just the opportunity that we have, particularly in uh, Christian biographies, to be able to uh, see the way that God has worked in so many people before us who are our brothers and sisters in the faith, and how God worked out his good and perfect plan Uh, for their lives, just like he's working out for our lives. And at least one biography I'd love to recommend to you this morning is a biography called For the Glory. And For the Glory is about uh, a man, a Scottish man, named Eric Liddell. Uh, Many of you may have heard of his name before, um, from his 1924 Olympic appearance, in which uh, he decided, because of his religious convictions, his Christian convictions, not to run on Sundays. Uh, Or maybe you don't even know it, but that uh, song from that movie in 1981 about his life, Chariots of Fire, uh, the theme song is often stuck in many people's heads. Uh, If you want to know it, I will not sing it for you now. You can ask the person beside you if they know that theme song. But one thing that's so encouraging about that biography is the fact that Eric Liddell had an impeccable testimony. No matter where he was and no matter who spoke about him, his testimony was always one of vivacious character, a character that loved God above everything else and was committed to obey him and love him in any way that he could. One such commendation that I thought was very interesting explained the interaction that he had, this man, with Eric Liddell and explained him in this way. He said that Eric spoke with a charming Scottish brogue and more than anyone I have ever known, he typified the joyful Christian life. He had a marvelous sense of humor. He was full of laughter and practical jokes, but always in good taste. His voice was nothing special, but how he loved to sing, particularly the grand old hymns of faith. Two of his favorites were God Who Touches Earth With Beauty and There Is a Wideness in God's Mercy. He was no great orator by any means, but he had a way of riveting his listeners with those marvelous clear blue eyes of his. Yes, that's what I remember most about him as he spoke, those wonderful eyes and how they would twinkle. That kind of description kind of seems interesting. It, it almost sounds like these two guys are holding hands, walking through a meadow, just being friends, just enjoying the Christian life in some beautiful green Scottish plain somewhere. But the reality is that this man speaking was a Christian min- uh, missionary, and he actually met him and... The only time that he ever experienced with him was actually while they were both imprisoned in a Japanese internment camp in the early 1940s. And that testimony was taken while they were there during that time. Because the truth is not many people know that after that 1924 Olympic appearance that Eric Liddell made, instead of returning back to the Olympics four years later, he became a missionary in China. He determined that the call of his life was to teach the people about Jesus Christ. Originally, he actually brought his whole family, his very young family, with him. But when things became very volatile between China and Japan, he sent them home. And that was a very good thing because not very long after he had sent them home, he was captured and he was put into a Japanese internment camp. And he was there until he died in 1945. That situation was a very horrendous one, but as I just read for you, his testimony during that period was one of an incredible kind of discipline. During that period, he organized sports, usually acting as a referee, mainly for children. He created recreational activities, and most importantly, he preached to the people in that camp on a weekly basis. Though he never saw his own family again, the children in that camp went on later to explain after being freed from that camp, that Eric was the father that they did not have during their time there. But his greatest discipline was seen in the fact that one of his roommates would wake him up every single morning, and they would go through the word of God, and they would pray for the success of the coming day in giving glory to Christ. Now, often reading these kinds of stories, our first thought, I can tell you for a fact my first thought, is that I could never be that kind of person. I could never be that kind of superhuman Christian force that someone like Eric Liddell was. But the reality is that that's a very, very dangerous thing to think. And that's a lie. It's not true. And the reason it's not true is because the means by which he was able to have strength in overwhelming situations is the same means of grace that's available to us. What it really is, what their key was, is that Eric Liddell, like so many faithful Christian saints before him, had a kind of perspective. He had a spiritual, godly, faithful perspective in which he saw persecution and any other distraction to seeing God was actually revealing more and more of God's grace to him in every circumstance. And Eric Liddell wasn't the only person who did this. The greatest example that we have in Scripture is that of the Apostle Paul. Today we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. And if you'd like to turn there now, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to land. But Eric Liddell is such an interesting example so many years later of the same kind of tenacity that the Apostle Paul had, which was probably proved in no better place in Scripture maybe outside of the book of Acts, then in the letter of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, we see Paul at his most weary, his most worn out. His desire to be faithful to the Corinthians in bringing their sin before them and teaching them the word of God has resulted in a couple of his correspondences, his couple of his letters, leaving the Corinthian church very sad. They've had hurt feelings. And along with that, confidence in Paul's leadership over them is at an all-time low. Paul feels torn in communicating at all, considering the last letter that he sent to them, by his own admission, may have used too strong wording. And even though he remembers them in his prayers, and it brings him turmoil every time he thinks about his relationship with them, he has to write to them. He has to write to them because he needs to confirm his apostleship among them. He desires to teach to them and preach to them more, and he has confidence that he has been called by God to do that very task. More than that, he has to rectify a situation between a number of false apostles who have come to teach them uh, false claims, and as well as that, there's a member of their church who they need to forgive and restore to the church, and they haven't done that and so Paul needs to call them to accept that man back in the church. There's a number of reasons that Paul needs to write this letter to them. But even with all those reasons, he, he can't help but in this correspondence try to express the love and grace of Jesus Christ to them to build them up in the faith. And so he wants to teach them towards contentment. He wants to know and teach them the joy that there is to be found in a life with Christ. And he does that so amazingly in chapter four of 2 Corinthians. While he is building them up in the knowledge of Christ, he explains a desire he has for them. His chief desire in verse one of chapter four and where we will begin in verse 16 of chapter four is that they would not lose heart that they would not become weary or exhausted. They wouldn't allow that to happen, whether it's fatigue or frustration or hopelessness. His desire is that it wouldn't creep into their spiritual sturdiness that is only found in Jesus. Eric Liddell was an example of that, and the Apostle Paul here is an example of that in explaining that that all comes from God, that their strength to stay with Christ, all of it comes from Christ. And so he desires for them to not be weary and explain to them the means by which you may continue in faithful endurance towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we will be in verse 16 to 18, he explains to them these words so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The point that Paul wants to make to them is, in the same way I don't lose heart, I want you to not lose heart. In the way that I can continue to endure, I desire for you to also endure. And he sums that up as explaining to them a matter of having an eternal perspective. That he wants to explain to them the spiritual perspective of eternity that has been given them by Christ. And so the point that he gets to is that Paul is going to explain three priorities, three priorities of a spiritual perspective so that we do not lose heart while we walk towards eternity. Paul explains three priorities of a spiritual perspective so that we do not lose heart while walking towards eternity. And so he breaks these down very simply in three verses, so we'll go through each of them one by one, starting in verse 16, in which the way he explains the spiritual perspective is in the observance of the inward over the outward. Observe the inward over the outward. Verse 16 again says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day the fact that death is inevitable is something that is explained and attested to very well in scripture job who was an excellent example of faithfulness though he went through such troubling periods in his own life prayed this very thing to god in job 14:5 where he said man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. However, Paul in our text readily admits that the fear of death is still very relevant. It's very real. And so Paul states in his opening verse, in verse 16, that we don't lose heart even though our outer self is wasting away. And the implication is that our mortality the reality of death is a distraction along this Christian life. When our bones ache and our bodies start to function less well than they once did, doubt might creep in. Paul considers this in his own life, and he readily tells the Corinthians that this is a part of life, but mortality is uncomfortable. People outside of the Christian faith, as we well know, will readily distract themselves from this by any means necessary. That this life is supposed to be lived in a way in which pleasure can be gained and taken, and whatever happens after death is going to be pushed aside, but it never ever goes away. We are wasting away because we are mortal, and that is frightening. And we might ask ourselves in the Christian life, when am I closer to the end? When am I one year away? When am I one month? When am I one year? And as Christians, our desire would be that one day we would desire to tell God that we've lived our life well, that we've used our days well. But how do we do that when death seems to be at the door every second? Well, Paul says that because he says At the same time that there is an outward process of your mortal body taking place, at the exact same time there is an internal process taking place, which is of a much more hopeful sort. It is the kind of process that is encouraging, that is worth observing, and it is being maintained for you. Paul explains this idea very, very well, in another letter that he wrote closer to the end of his ministry in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. And in that chapter, he explains it this way You, however, are not in the flesh, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit, is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One person who addressed this text very seriously in his own life and in his pulpit ministry was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he did because he was speaking to a congregation who had gone through the fears of World War II in which death was more inevitable to them, it seems, than in many other periods in history. And when he considered the same text, he explained it this way. The Christian does not merely stop at the recognition of the inevitable, that is death. He doesn't blink at facts. He doesn't try to conceal them or change them or manipulate them or ignore them. No, he looks steadily at them and then he looks through them and beyond them paul's explaining that in his ministry he won't stumble just because his body is aching and he remembers that death is impending he would never do that because he recognized that he has been brought to life within himself the death is never going to be the end of his existence Because an internal existence is proving to him something better is coming. Death is only the beginning of the Christian life. And he explains that by the process of internal renewal. That word he uses, renewal, can also be explained as coming to life or the way that we often associate it as maturity. He is talking about an inward maturity taking place a being made newer and newer and newer, though the outside seems to be becoming older and older. Because what is within us in our lives becomes more and more about God rather than more and more about our own existence. The other place, only one other place, in which that word renewal is used is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul puts it this way. That we, that as Christians, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And Paul is trying to explain what inner renewal looks like. Renewal looks like a person in their very soul, in their very being, simply put, cherishing the incomparability of Christ. Cherishing and being thankful for the relationship that Christ has bought for them with his own blood. That at the price of his death, we would no longer fear death, because death is not the end of our existence. And that in this life, whatever is going to happen will happen. As a response and process of the outer ordainment of God, that everything is in his hands, and our only job is to appreciate that though everything around us might be dying, we are growing and growing and growing into a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is a comfort. That That is a contentment. And that truly, especially now, is the question for us in our personal lives, which is, is it comforting to consider the renewal of your soul? Maybe a better way to say it is, is your greatest comfort in your life the fact that your soul is being renewed? You'll notice that he contrasts that with the outer and everything outside of the soul because Paul is trying to make a point that so much of our lives and every work that we do tends to be the maintenance of what is outside of ourselves, whether it be our jobs and our families, whatever it is. And, and Paul's not denying that those are bad things but what he's saying is that there tends to be a deprioritization of what is going on in our souls and rather a prioritization of what is happening outside of ourselves and so what he is saying is that the perspective of how life should be lived is a spiritual one rather than a physical one it is one in which our spirit renewed souls do everything from the standpoint of thankfulness for what God is doing within. And nothing can really be done, and nothing can be truly maintained the way God desires us to maintain it if it doesn't begin with a maintenance of what is going on inside. And that everything in our lives would go back to the glory of Christ and what he has done for us in our souls, the process that he has begun in us. And that idea could jump off into many, many different points about what renewal looks like. But Paul wants to make a particular point of one thing. Now, it might be easy for the Christian to consider death either a far-off possibility or maybe no fear of death because of what we have in Christ. But the point is that most Christians don't actually fear death, maybe. What they fear is the road going towards death. They fear the pain and the afflictions that are going to happen now up until death. And so because of that reality, Paul immediately switches gears and wants to talk about that. And he wants to address that part of the spiritual perspective. And so in verse 17, he switches gears and he explains to them the main tenet of spiritual perspective being that we need to remember afflictions are preparing us. We need to remember that our afflictions are preparing us. Verse 17 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now as we address the fact that affliction is supposed to be a part of our lives, we might immediately be frustrated or offended by what Paul is saying here. It is almost triggering to try and think that Paul would call affliction light and momentary. It is often not. Affliction can sometimes last many days or weeks or years. Sometimes people's entire lives are nothing but one painful experience after another. And it doesn't put upon you a burden that is easy to bear. It puts upon you deep frustrations, and it distracts you from anything in this life that seems to be good. So why on earth is Paul explaining that affliction is so easy? We might think, just like Eric Liddell was described, that maybe he's just a superhuman apostle. Maybe he's just a better Christian than I am. But the fact is that Paul wasn't. He readily admits that he wasn't. He says many times that he's the chief among all sinners. But maybe that's not what we're thinking. Maybe we're thinking that Paul hasn't just experienced affliction like I have. He's speaking from a position where it's easy for him to say, but you haven't been where I've been. And if you continue reading the book of 2 Corinthians, you'll know without a fact that that is definitely not true either, because Paul went through many, many afflictions in many different ways. And was scorned by so many different people he was trying to love. The reason that Paul is saying that affliction isn't as bad as it should be is because it is a useful process. That it is a useful process. The way he explains it is that believers have been given an eternal sight through Christ in which we can see affliction as preparation It is preparation. It has a role to play in our understanding of God's glory. That whatever the process is going to be internally, it is a process in which affliction is necessary. It might be helpful to consider that just before chapter 4 and chapter 3, where Paul here is explaining what affliction does do for us, in chapter 3 he explained what affliction does not do for us. The process he explained in chapter 3 was that affliction he describes in many, many terms. He calls it perplexity, he calls it persecution, and he calls it a striking down. But what he says affliction does not do for us is a whole list of things. Paul says this is a list of negative effects in which affliction does not do for the Christian. He said it doesn't lead to them being crushed. It doesn't lead to them being driven to despair. It doesn't lead to them being forsaken or being destroyed now it might be the evil intentions of satan and the evil forces that he commands those might be his intended effects of affliction but those are not the intended afflictions of those who are in christ so when paul uses this word preparation what he means is that it is producing something it is accomplishing something it is using a certain means To reach a certain end. Paul explains this very well in another section of scripture in Romans chapter 5 verses 3 to 5 where he uses the exact same word in this sense. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. That it leads to endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. The way that you might see Paul is explaining this process is one of a shaping. It is shaping us to be a better believer. Famous artist of the high renaissance period, Michelangelo, once talked about shaping a piece of marble, sculpting in this sense. The way he said it is, the more that a marble wastes, the more that the statue grows. Now, we might not want to consider ourselves in the Christian life as a piece of marble being hammered and chiseled by the forces of this world, but the reality is that that process is necessary to make us something God intends for us. So Paul begins to explain that the reason that he sees that affliction doesn't have a negative effect on his life is because it doesn't take him further away from Christ. It actually leads him closer to Christ. He starts to see a greater vision of the way that Christ is making him endure, that it is making him last, that his power to preserve him in affliction is so much greater than the affliction itself. But what it is really doing for him is drawing him to a closer and closer understanding of what he describes as the eternal weight of glory. The key word there is weight. The idea of weight is the fact that many trade cities throughout the Roman Empire would show the worth or the value of something, usually gold or silver bars of metal. They would determine their worth by their literal weightiness. They would put them on a scale and compare them to other weights, and that is how they would determine the worth of an object. And so Paul is just doing this, he says, in an eternal sense. He's explaining how much glory is worth. And the way he does it is he brings out these two scales, and on one side is affliction and all of its negative effects and its power to destroy a person and to lead them away from Christ. He puts that on one side of the scale. But then, the glory of God is revealed on the other side of the scale, and there's no competition. The scale just breaks. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can be put on that other side of the scale, whether it be affliction or any other thing in this world, that can compare with this, this worth that lasts forever, that is immeasurable compared with anything else. And this might be important for us to understand because we are going to speak with people or we are the people ourselves who have witnessed affliction and suffering. And the first reaction of someone who is not a believer might be to come up to you and say, that's easy for you to just put some nice theological stamp upon my suffering and tell me it's all okay, but it's not you don't understand where I've been. But the point is that we are not trying to explain their pain away. What we are trying to do is put up their pain and their comfort in this life versus the worth of glory. And the reason this seems to be so powerful is because we have such a demeaning and devaluing of the worth of glory. Glory in our affliction just often seems like it's worth so much less than it's really worth because a sight of christ and who he is and what he has done is being explained as such a great sight that affliction seems to be a welcome advantage to us relying on the power of christ more and more paul knows this reality very well even at the end of his letter to the corinthians if they're thinking that He explains, I've thought that before too. And he says in chapter 12 that I have gone to God and I have said, please take my pain away, which he describes as a thorn in the flesh. And the response that God has given him was this. That God has said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that simple explanation from God did not frustrate Paul, It didn't hurt his feelings. Rather, it changed his perspective to respond this way. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly for my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong." It is the inward understanding of how more and more and more worthy is Christ. That whatever means possible brings us to a better recognition of him than all the better. Realizing the worth of the glory of God is worth hardship. Because affliction builds for us a dependence upon God, which demonstrates his glory in power and grace towards us. And if we didn't have affliction, then we would depend on our own strength and our own glory. And that will never, ever bring us through affliction. And it certainly won't prepare anything in us. Because when you understand the worth of glory, you want to not only see it, but you want to be with it. Because the glory revealed in Jesus Christ is one of a relationship that we would get to by whatever means necessary. And so what affliction does is it reveals to us a longing to be with that glory. It reveals to us a longing to be with Christ. That's the way the apostle Peter saw it. After all that he went through in the affliction of his life in speaking to his people and writing a letter to his people, trying to comfort them in the afflictions that they had with the Roman empire, who is lighting homes on fire, and the government blaming it on Christians. He explained the same hope should rest on them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he says to them, after you have suffered a little while, again, just like Paul, in the scope of eternity, affliction seems like a moment. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace... Who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you in a word affliction makes you homesick affliction makes you miss the home that you know you are being prepared for affliction reminds you that this world is passing away and that it has absolutely nothing to offer you But one day when we go home to be with that eternal glory, that glory that lasts forever, when we are with the Lord Jesus Christ and we finally see what he has been doing for us in this life, we will see it with eyes that no longer have sin and no longer have hardship. And that kind of expectation will make us faithful people in this lifetime. The problem that we tend to find is that When we think of maturity and this kind of inward renewal, we think of it as, I just need to learn more and more. Being a mature Christian means I just need to learn more and more and more. That new truth is the way to new renewal. But really, all Paul is trying to say in one simple sentence is that what actually demonstrates the maturity of a believer, what really contributes to their endurance in this life is simply from valuing the truth that they already know. From valuing the strength that is to be found in Christ. That the idea of God's strength being sufficient for you is a truth that you can think of every single day and it will become sweeter and more profound and more encouraging to you every single day. Of course we develop and grow in our knowledge of who Christ is but we don't demean the knowledge that we already have of him. Understanding the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, that is beyond anything else in this world, is such a good hope that it will keep you to endure throughout the rest of our life. It is the reminder that Christ's exaltation is worth any affliction. It is what our lives are meant for, In the first place and that kind of hope the hope that even though everything outside of us seems to be wasting away and everything within us is pointing us towards heaven and that everything outside of us seems to be provoking us away from christ but all of that is simply preparing us for life with christ all of those truths are pointing towards an action that paul wants the people to take and that is where he goes in verse 18 that the final aspect of a spiritual perspective is that it looks towards eternity rather than the temporary. Verse 18 says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The key word that Paul is trying to bring out there is looking at. He doesn't just mean a physical looking at. What he's talking about is an observation, observing with the intent to learn from and be changed of as a result of that observation. It's the Christian mindset. It's the focus of your life based on where you are looking, what you are prioritizing. And it seems that after he already explained the eternal weight of glory that this would seem like obvious. Of course, we would be looking at Christ, but what he's saying is while well, verse 16 and 17 were explaining a passive process, something that God is doing for you, he's also revealing what you must also, therefore, do. The way that John Murray explained this very helpfully is that God works in us as we also work. And the relationship is that because God works, so we then work. That God's process isn't just an exclusively passive one, but he has given us responsibilities in this life of what we must do. And what we must do is we must look at the glory of Christ. But verse 18, he doesn't actually phrase it that way. What he says instead is that we need to focus on unseen things. And he further qualifies that by saying the unseen things are the things that are eternal. And so the question is, if in verse 17, if he explained that the eternal weight of glory is Christ, why did he phrase verse 18 as looking at unseen things? Why didn't he just say, as we look at Christ? The reason is very simple, is because Christ is that unseen thing. The fact is that we know from the gospel records that Christ is not in the tomb. He is gone. And the reason is because his whole life of perfect perfect obedience to the Father was all done in preparation for the ministry that the Father had given him for our eternal salvation. And as a result of that, upon his death, he did not stay dead, but instead he was raised to resurrection life and even now sits on the eternal throne of glory. The recognition is that we tend to not look at that reality that we tend to admit that christ and his truth is relevant but we don't actively try to search out a growing love and cherishing of that fact that's why he says don't look at seen things the implication is that we always look at seen things that we always see the physicality and the materiality of this world And our priorities tend to be on things around us, but they don't come from an inward thankfulness and a provoking to give God glory in whatever we do. In chapter 3, Paul had already explained that there were people who lived in this kind of fashion. And the tragedy was those people were God's people. That the Israelites were those people who could not understand and recognize and continue to look at the glory of God. Even when their chief leader, Moses, came down from Mount Sinai, after Moses had witnessed as much of God as someone could possibly witness, a simple passing by of God, that was so much glory, even a fraction, the smallest fraction of God's glory, was so much that his face literally shone, And he had to put a veil on his face to cover his face from the people. And even that literal revelation of glory to the Israelites was not enough for them to continue to look at that glory. And so Paul explains with that explanation, with that description of the Israelite history, that just as there was a veil on Moses, so there was a veil on the hearts of the Israelites. They were blinded by their sin because they desired to look at and to indulge in their sin. And so because of that, we might ask ourselves, how can we have a better mindset than that? How can we do any better? And Paul has already explained that in chapter 3 as well, because after going through an explanation of the Israelites, he says very clearly in chapter 3, verse 14, that through Christ, the veil is taken away. Through Christ, the veil is taken away. And he continues two verses later in verse 16 by saying, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That the renewal of your souls has also an already taken place so that you now have the ability to look at Christ. You have the ability to observe the glory of God. And even though just as Moses could not fully see God, and the bible says no one can see god the point is that we can see the eternal weight of glory of christ that christ has made god known that in seeing christ we see god colossians 1:15 says that christ is the image of the invisible god and john begins his gospel his gospel account of jesus christ's life by saying in verse 18 no one has ever seen god but the only god speaking of Christ who as at the father's side he has made him known it is at looking at Christ that we see the beauty and experience of the glory of God fully and therefore are drawn towards continual observance of that glory and so he sums up that thought in chapter 3 verse 18 by saying this and we all with unveiled face beholding that is looking upon the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. God has promised us that as you look more and more upon Christ, as your mindset is focused more and more upon Christ, you will be more and more transformed to understand its worth. That you will be more encouraged and invigorated and enthusiastic about giving glory to God. And that's important for us because that's why he explains it with that contrasting idea of the things that are seen. He is asking the Christian to compare that which is unseen to that which is seen. The psalmist had his certain plea in Psalm 119 verse 37 by saying this, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Now, none of us do this perfectly, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is what am I looking at? What am I devoting my attention to? What am I finding value and worth in? Because none of it will have any worth or any value if it is not eternal. It is good for us to be responsible to the priorities and the responsibilities that have been given on our life, but they are not glorifying to God if our doing of them doesn't come from a longing to glorify God in them. That all of those things, when you are looking at your job, when you are looking at your family, when you are looking at your hobbies or your interests, that that must also happen while you are simultaneously looking at Christ. And the worth that he provides to this life is that which can endure any fear and any affliction that is in the way. So before completing this thought, and thinking of the examples that we have before us, I'd like to bring one other example to you, which is a man named John Rogers. John Rogers was a man who was friends with and actually received the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ from William Tyndale. William Tyndale was the one who was the first to translate the Bible into English. And after William Tyndale was arrested and burned at the stake for... Doing such a thing, John Rogers fled and took the notes that he had made and spent the rest of his life creating commentaries and uh, concordances that would help people understand the glory of God better and better. And as a result of that, eventually, after the death of King Edward and Bloody Mary ascended the throne, one of the first things she did was go to find John Rogers and arrest John Rogers. And while he spent 18 months in prison, he was given the ability to be freed from that pain, the pain of being away from his family who he would never see again in this life, and from even a child that was being born to him then who he never got to see in his life. And every single day for 18 months, he was given the opportunity of a pardon. If he would simply recant the doctrines that they disagreed with, that the Catholic Church disagreed with, and he would simply commit to their idea of God. But knowing that that was not who God was, he never relented. And so on the day that he was brought out of prison and he was led towards the stake that would eventually burn him, and in an earthly sense, kill him, he was met with thousands of people in that town as he was being led to that stake, cheering for him. Family members and friends from the church, all encouraging him to continue on to be the first of what was called the Marian martyrs to suffer and die for the gospel. And in a cor- uh, correspondence that one Catholic man wrote to another person, he described it as, it looked as though a man were, being, were going towards his wedding day. The point is that men like John Rogers could see beyond whatever was going through this life, and in an eternal pursuit of the glory of God and explaining and living a life that desired to give glory to God, the cost was worth it every single time. The encouragement that we have from this is that if you are a believer, you have been revealed the eternal weight of glory. And the eternal weight of glory is that the creator of this entire universe who created you and me and everything here created a good world for his glory that willful sinners, every single one of us, deny him that glory every single day when we sin. And instead of displaying his perfect judgment in destroying us and punishing us eternally for our sins, instead he sent his son Christ. And in the sending of his son Christ to live a perfect life and suffer the eternal weight of punishment upon him, he would free up those who would believe in him towards eternal life that in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ we might be provided the righteousness we need to stand before God and the punishment for our sins would be punished on Christ instead and if that eternal weight of glory has been revealed to you the promise is that it will continue to renew you every single day it will help you to continue to endure through any affliction that comes And that kind of perspective will draw you to look at him more and more. And our hope is that we would enjoy gazing upon the glory of God for our entire Christian lives. So let's pray. Father, it is hard to imagine that we would ever know you or have a relationship with you if we If we truly estimate the worth that you are due, the amazing thing is that we never can. Our sin in this life always seems to be a detriment towards giving you the glory that you are due. But because you are greater than us and you are more gracious than us, you have revealed your glory to us every single day through the word and through the beauties of fellowship and through the preservation of our hearts and souls and bodies through trials. And that no matter what happens to us in this life, we may rest upon that eternal weight of glory. So Lord, please help us to know that more and more. Please reveal that to our hearts. Let us be steadfast and resolute to continue to tell you that your glory is our greatest desire. Please be brighter to our hearts that we may look at you more and more. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.